listen, same vision is for equal rights and justice for the people, them. What's happening to this beautiful world that we're living in? World citizen, lift up your voice. Welcome to another episode of the People Powered Planet Podcast, where each week we have amazing guests who are solutionaries. This world is so filled with so many videos about the awesome, terrible problems of the world. And if you thought that was bad, it's even worse and even worse than that. And But what we need is some inspiration and some of the alternatives that will work. How can we take us forward into a positive future? Now, this is a special week because this is when the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists uh, has moved their doomsday clock. That is a sort of a proverbial clock measuring how close humanity is to extinction, and they've moved us to 90 seconds before midnight. So the question is, how do we at this last minute avert catastrophe for this little beautiful, incredible small planet we have drifting through space, our spaceship Earth? And an excellent guest to answer that is today's speaker, author, and uh, international lawyer, uh, Saveda Mahani, who uh, is the author of uh, five books and has a uh, heads and has founded the Center for Peace and Global Governance. Um, and her books include The Alchemy of Peace and, uh, and uh, the, key, the, the Building a World Federation, The Key to Resolving Our Global Crises. Uh, so welcome. Welcome, Saveda, to you. the People Powered Planet podcast. Thank you. I'm delighted to be here. Thank you for asking me. I look forward to our conversation. So let me ask you, when you heard that Bolton Atomic Scientist announcement, uh, how did that make you feel to start us off with? Huh. Well, I, it uh, put me in mind of what Arnold Toynbee, the famous 20th century historian, said and predicted in the 1970s. He said that if humanity were to survive, we would need to form some, uh, some kind of world government to tackle the challenges that were collective, that uh, global challenges demand collective solutions and that we were lacking the mechanism to do that. He then went on to note that human beings were very allergic to the idea of political unification. And then he said something really interesting. He said that fortunately that allergic reaction that we have is just a bad habit. And the good news about habits is that we can modify or relinquish them when the time comes. And the last thing he said was that he predicted that when humanity was faced with an existential crisis, which he believed would come about as a result of the atomic bomb, but some existential crisis that we would turn around on a dime and we would uh, be willing, albeit kicking and screaming, to form some form of limited world government uh, in order to get us there. In other words, he was hopeful that we would survive even though we would do this in the last second. And I must say, I, I, I agree with him. So I'm hopeful because we're getting closer to that time. We are down to that wire. And, you know, uh, Einstein, of course, uh, when you mentioned the atomic bomb, uh, he uh, uh, said the same thing. He said, with all my heart, I believe that the present world system of, of nation states will lead only to barbarism and inhumanity and that only some kind of a, of, of a world, world government can save us. Uh, and yet one of the big challenges has been that these ways people have been trying to achieve this is to try to get the existing nation states to 
to reform themselves. And we've been trying that for a long time. Let me start off with, I, I understand that uh, you were inspired in your writing, in, in your work, uh, by a, a a great leader. So um, the founder of the Baha'i Faith, which is just the latest in a series of progressive and continuous revelations from the same source, the Creator, by whatever name we want to call the Creator, uh, Baha'u'llah appeared in the middle of the 19th century, and it's fascinating because with the coming of each of these teachers, they bring the teachings that are necessary to meet the needs of humanity during that time, while they also build on all the spiritual truths. So one of the things that Baha'u'llah said, and I love this quote because it totally meshes with your philosophy, um, he said, let not a man glory in this that he loves his country, let him rather glory in this that he loves his kind. And he pointed out the fact that humanity has, if you look at the historical evolution of humanity, we've been going through various stages of growth, just like a human being would, going through various developmental stages, each of which is marked by an increasing circle of integration. So our loyalty to the units is growing wider and wider and wider. We started with loyalty to the family, the clan, the city state, the nation. And the next step is for us to owe our primary allegiance and loyalty to humanity as a whole. It's the next inevitable stage in our evolution. And apropos of that, he says, once we come to that understanding, we also need to create systems that are fit for purpose for humanity as it approaches its maturity. And one of those things is a, a, a world government. He spoke, it's amazing. Think about Iran today. And then think about the fact that in the middle of the 19th century, this uh, nobleman is talking about things like world government, about the need for a global system of collective security in which we have a global standing force. It put me in mind of what uh, I was listening to in the movie that you created about Gary Davis, that uh, we need you know, global law and we need enforcement. So here we go. And Baha'u'llah was talking about all of this before we'd even gone through a first world war, let alone a second world war and recognized that humanity was one collective unit, a single organism that needed to have the system of global governance. Mm -hmm. And um, one of the uh, one of the th key things uh, in in moving forward toward that is to uh, is, is as you've mentioned is a shift in our mindset. Uh, talk a little bit more about that mindset shift. That's the kind of thing Gary talked about. He talked about it. we need that click in our minds from being citizens of our. Of, of our nation, which is false. We're a citizen of a line drawn on a map that people made up. It's a, he said, all these nation states are, are imaginary. We imagine them, we created them, we fight wars over them, like little kids in a playground drawing a line with chalk. And if you step over that, I'm gonna beat you up. Uh, you know, and that if we step back and look at the reality, the reality is we don't have to make it one world, it is one world. How, how, what kind, how do we create that kind of shift in mindset? So I think the way to create it is to recognize a fundamental truth. And I think that a lot of the crises that humanity has been suffering through the last two or three years, uh, take COVID, the global economic recession, uh, the, the war in Ukraine that's led to a global energy crisis, a global food crisis, a threat of nuclear war uh, resurging again. Um, the lesson that is here for us all to learn is the reality. It is a, if you like, it's both a spiritual truth and a social truth. 
that human beings are one. The oneness of humanity is a reality. It is a law, if you like. Just as in the physical world, we have laws like the law of gravity. If you were to build an airplane, you could choose to ignore the law of gravity because we have free will choice, but it would be a really foolish thing to do because that airplane wouldn't take off, or if it did, it would come crashing down very quickly um, and cause a lot of injury. And yet we've blithely been ignoring the reality of our oneness and building all these systems of governance and institutions, social, political, environmental, and are now wondering why they're crashing around us. So to answer your question, one way, unfortunately, that we shift our mindset is through suffering. Suffering gives us the opportunity to learn the deep lesson of this law of oneness. Um, the other thing is recognizing, you know, it's not a question of borders. It's a question of what we make borders signify to us. Mm -hmm. um, boundaries themselves could be a good thing. I mean, we have Perfect. city boundaries, we have state boundaries, we have county boundaries, but we don't stand here and say, my county is better than your county, and I'm willing to do whatever it takes. I will sacrifice your county for my county. They're, they're just units of administration to make it as, to make somebody accountable, to make it reasonable for people to manage. Um, it's, it's for organizational structure. Uh, the problem is that we've we've embraced this disease of nationalism, which is this idea that my nation is better than yours, that I will do whatever it takes for my nation to survive. And the mindset shift comes about when we realize that in a world that is as interconnected and interdependent as ours, we become like a single body. So the liver can't say to the kidneys, you know what, I'm willing to sacrifice you or to say to the heart, I'll sacrifice you as long as I'm number one, because it's nonsensical. All the organs need each other and they all need to be healthy. So if any one country with its borders wants to assure its well-being, there is only one way, and that is to guarantee the well-being of the whole. You know, you've been a uh, active in this, as I understand it, uh, well, since since maybe the moment you were born. Uh, were you were you born a world citizen? <laughs> I was born a world citizen. And of course, my experiences in life, um, so in addition to my faith, my experiences in life taught me, kind of confirmed experientially, that the world really is one because of all the different places that I lived in and the kinds of peoples amongst which I grew up and the challenges that they faced and that they dragged me into facing. Tell us a little bit about that, about starting uh, with your with your with your childhood. <laughs> so I was born in East Africa in Kenya uh, just a year before it gained independence from Britain. It was a British colony. And uh, it was during the Mau Mau regime. It was a very bloody and brutal time in Kenya. And I went to a school where we had quotas. So we had it was 80% um, whites, uh, so, uh, it was like 10% black, 6% Indian, and then 4% other. And I was part of the 4%, which was other. In addition to that, I was persecuted in the school. So the kids, none of them, uh, I was different from all of them. So they didn't understand me. And so they felt very free persecuting me. And I mean, I mean persecution. So um, during the breaks, they would take me outside. Each of our, our schoolhouses was a separate building with a, a front yard. And they would stick me in a crate, a vegetable crate. 
they would turn it upside down, stick me in it, and then they would drag me literally through the mud in this crate and pour water on me through the slats in the crate. So, um, and it was just to humiliate me because in their minds, I was different from them. And to top it all off, I had a faith nobody really recognized or understood. So I realized then that we live in a world where we, we, you know, we're always in the business of saying you're different from me. And yet I could see that we were all truly one. <laughs> so that's the first example. So you were there uh, from your parents were serving there as uh, part of a Baha'i mission in effect, right? I'm not really. So we don't really have Baha'i missions. So nobody's paid to go anywhere and we don't proselytize, but Baha'is will voluntarily up, uh, pick up sticks and move to a different country in order to serve a community and a culture that they love. So my father and mother had each independently left Iran and gone to Africa. My father actually started off in the Seychelles Islands and then ended up in Kenya. And my mother went to Kenya and they got married there. So um, yes, that was uh, that's how I I was born in Nairobi. What other countries briefly did you did you live in that developed your world citizen views? Um, I we then moved to Israel, where the Baha'i World Center is. My mother went to serve there. She was invited, and I went to Arab Christian school. It was a convent run by French nuns. It was a French order. And um, and I lived in a Jewish neighborhood. And every day when I'd come home from school, the kids in the neighborhood would line up on both sides of us, myself and my mother, and throw shoes over our heads and say, you've got to pick. You're either with us or you're with the others. You're either with the Palestinians or you're with the Israelis. You've got to pick a side. And so I spent all those years there kind of consistently and patiently explaining that I love both of them, that I wasn't going to pick and choose and that it made no difference to me because we were really world citizens. So that was the second experience. Then when you became a teenager was when you first began to read the works uh, of Baha'u'llah, uh, uh, of right? Yes, I got more immersed, especially in Baha'u'llah's works about his blueprint for uh, global governance and a world federation and a system of collective security. And I totally fell in love with those ideas because they absolutely resonated. So so tell us about those. And, and you also speak in your reimagining our world about uh, Woodrow Wilson's 14 points, development of the League of Nations, the United Nations. Tell us a little bit about that uh, line of uh, of development of thinking of humanity. So, um, so it, it's very vast. So Baha'u'llah wrote what amounts to over a hundred volumes of writing. So we're not going to be covering those today in our short time <laughs> together. But in terms of global governance, you can break it down, I think, simply into the following concepts. We need definitely a new infrastructure, global infrastructure to meet the needs of a maturing humanity. So what we lack is a, a global system, a, a mechanism, collective decision-making and enforcement institutions to solve global challenges and meet the needs of humanity. So if we're gonna uh, solve climate, the climate change problem, nuclear proliferation, all these big problems that no one country or 10 countries can solve. So Baha'u'llah talked about the need to create eventually 
a system of a world federation. And the analogy that's given is that of the United States of America, how we moved from a confederation to a federation because we arrived at the same conclusion that there were that our unity would be broken if we continued to be a loose association of states. Actually, the history of this country is very, very interesting and one that we many of us forget. For instance, we forget that one of the main drivers to create a US Federation was uh, the problem, our finances, our indebtedness to other countries and our inability to pay off our debts. When you look at the European Union, you saw the same during the debt crisis. Um, the other was security. You know, each state had its own militia. And the fear was that as each state lined itself up with different European countries, that it would cause us to end up in wars against each other. So we have to unify and get rid of these state armies and instead create a national force to maintain order within our country and also, of course, to, to help us as, as we maintain peace in the world. Um, so Baha'u'llah talks about the need for a global federation where each nation will cede a certain amount of sovereignty to a world government um, that is supranational. So we're no longer talking about maintaining an equilibrium of interest between nations, but recognizing that because we're this one body, a single organism, that our interests are fused. And you see that with climate change and nuclear proliferation and so on. Our interests are definitely completely fused. The second thing in addition to institutions is, is identifying a system of first principles or global ethics upon which all countries and peoples can agree that underpin this new institutional infrastructure. So principles like justice and oneness and the fact that the advantage of one country can only be guaranteed by guaranteeing the advantage of the whole body of humanity, the world. Um, and actually another principle, which is, is that force in today's maturing world can only be used in service of justice. You see, we're not at the point yet where humanity is not mature yet, enough yet to be able to completely give up use of force. It needs to stop. So nations, Baha'u'llah says, have to agree not to use force in international relations. So no force from one nation against the other or one people against the other. But if there's a genocidal leader somewhere, the whole world has to be able to stand up to that leader and say, oh, no, you don't. Right. And it's words are not enough. You've got to be able to to be able to back it up with force or else, as we see in today's world, nations behave with complete impunity. So these these global ethics uh, are, are critical. And the most important thing underpinning these things is mindset, a shift in how we interpret what's going on in the world today one of which is having the historical perspective of humanity going through various stages of growth and now approaching its maturity. But we're going through a turbulent adolescence, which explains our really bad behavior right now. And it also gives us hope that we will come through it, well, right? <laughs> yes, yes it does. Uh, but I, I think that one of the challenges of course seems to be that uh, is depending on the existing nation states to be able to make the change. We lobby, we plead, we, we beg our government leaders to make these changes. And we've been doing that, as you pointed out, for over 100 years. Uh, and, uh, and, uh, uh, and, and what happens, you know, when, when you mentioned the, the parallel to the formation of the United States, 
well, uh, at first, the states all wanted to hold on to their sovereignty, and they sent these people to Philadelphia by horse and buggy to, to, to and they were supposed to just have, they, they had this uh, Articles of Confederation, it was sort of like the UN, they were supposed to get everybody, uh, uh, you know, everyone kept their sovereignty, but they only, they, 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 they would still collaborate in some way, and it wasn't really working, and it was only when the uh, when our founders uh, reestablished themselves as a committee of a whole, they let go of uh, their nation, not representing their individual nations. We're not here representing our nations. We are these people ourselves, and we as people, we declare, you know, and they issued this amazing Declaration of Independence said that it is the right of the people to institute new government. And they actually created uh, the United States of America, the gov government above the states that were dividing them. Uh, and I think uh, that sort of has a parallel to today to that, uh, uh, you know, people have been begging the UN to reform itself. It's right there. They're supposed to be a, 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 a they're supposed to be right in the charter. They're supposed to be a, 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 a mechanism for, for reforming that, for changing it. But it doesn't happen because we're asking the people who have the existing power and, and who stay or who are in power because they represent us against them in this condition of world anarchy. We're asking them to kind of reform from inside that nation state system. And uh, Buckminster Fuller pointed out that you never, you, you know, you never change things by fighting the existing reality. Uh, to change something, you have to build a new model that makes that old existing model obsolete. Uh, so you mentioned watching watching Gary's film, and what he uh, what he recommends in there at the end is that. Uh, Rather than you know try to get these realize that these that we're 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 the sovereigns we're the ones who create right. government and give them power we've right. created these artificial constructs that are dividing our country and you mentioned the, the parallel of the body we're like try to imagine if you had if you had 180 different brains all going in different directions trying to run that body I mean of course it would crash and burn and destroy itself uh, you know, you've got to come out, somehow come together and create this neural network of humanity that comes together into a global brain that can govern it. And that's starting to happen with the Internet. It's all that, lots of challenges. But the idea that we're, you know, here we are interconnecting with Zooms and we're all over the world and we're connecting with each other. Uh, and Gary had this idea that we could have these Zoom type meetings, but with certain tools that allowed us to uh, to, to begin to create what's called a, syner a synergy system that allowed us to bring out what is it that we really want, what are our goals, and then have these synergistic uh, on the on the geodesic sphere model uh, interactions interact with others and others and sort of come together as a, a global brain of humanity above and outside a new model outside the existing uh, nation state system that uh, you know all the constitutions say they drive their power from people. The Universal Declaration of Human Rights says uh, that the will of the people shall be the basis of the authority of government. If we can find a way that we as the people come together and create the will of the people at the global level, we'll be an unstoppable force that can save humanity. What do you think of, of that? What Gary was saying at the end about uh, creating that people-powered planet. Um, I, yes, absolutely. I, I, uh, so this is also the work that I've dedicated myself to for the last 20 years is what I, I call it consciousness raising work, right? Raising awareness and creating spaces and fora for uh, human beings everywhere to come together and to consult and cooperate and collaborate and to create the mindset shifts. Uh, so that, that is a given. So you want to create a culture 
what that does is it creates a global culture of peace, basically, and a culture that recognizes our, our oneness and our, our unity, and that then demands that we create a, a, a structure. What we do need, however, is an infrastructure because, um, um, as you said, having a lot of people, you know, look, we all have opinions and ideas and each one of us thinks that our opinion is better than, than the next person's opinion. And now we're going to be 8 billion people on the planet and everyone's going to have their own opinion. So somehow we also need to come together and find a system for then creating um, a, 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 a global system of governance. The UN is not it. The UN was never given the authority needed to be a proper system of governance. We, we don't have a world parliament. We don't have a world legislature. The members of the General Assembly are not directly elected by the peoples of the world. They don't represent them as parliamentarians. They're not capable of passing binding laws to, to stem, say, the problem of uh, nuclear proliferation or climate change or global economic recession, you name it, or war or anything, which is why that they're, they're so hamstrung. Uh, the UN has many weaknesses, and you're right. You can't ask the people who feel they have a little bit of power to give up what they have. So we need to be thinking about setting something up alongside the UN. And I have many ideas for that that I've written about in, the, in my books that we don't really have time to get into today. But the other thing is that I do believe that another purpose of us doing this global education at the grassroots is to create in citizenry, the citizens of the world everywhere, um, the, the, the power, empower them, empower ourselves to demand that we have fit leaders, leaders with the kind of qualities, with the kind of character that we need um, to people these amazing new institutions that we also want to create. And I believe, so uh, I believe that the way this is likely to come about is that we start with a core group of leaders who are trusted around the world, who have high intentions, and whose only aim is to bring peace to the world. That has to be the one and only item on the agenda. Who come together and agree to do this and are there from then are able to come up with a system of global governance, say, we need to have a world parliament, we need to have a world executive, we need to have a world court that actually has compulsory jurisdiction and that uh, has powers of enforcement because there's a standing police force that can enforce its judgments. They come up with the scheme and then they get all the other leaders to ratify this scheme. I think this is the only way practically that it's going to work, but it starts with creating a culture at the grassroots, then we elect fit leaders, then a core group comes together, and then that core group takes the idea and gets all to ratify it, because everybody has to sign on to this, otherwise you will have anarchy, you'll have a lot of well-meaning people around the world, each with their own ideas, but humanity does need a system of organization. And we need a better system of organization than we've ever had or seen in the world. Uh, let me just uh, share with you an analogy uh, of, um, this is a Singaporean diplomat uh, and professor. His name is Kishore Mahbubani. It gives a beautiful analogy. He says there was a time when humanity consisted of 193 boats bobbing on the sea of international life. 
And their only aim was to avoid uh, bumping into each other and having accidents. He said, that is no longer the case. We are now, because of our interconnectedness and interdependence, we're 193 cabins on a single ship. And while each of the cabins has a means of governing its internal affairs, the ship as a whole lacks a captain and crew. So when we hit turbulent storms, there is nothing we can do. Um, and, and, and we're likely to founder and, and sink. And so um, he says, we need that. And we also need a, a system of principles that we all agree on because when we hit turbulent waters, if each cabin has its own rules for what it's gonna do to get out of it, it's likely to scuttle the ship. So these are your principles and your institution. I love this idea of the ship and the need for captain and crew. That is a system of global governance that we need, a world government. Well, we are actually a ship. We're a spaceship Earth, and we are traveling through the through the universe together. And okay. uh, and, and 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 our ship is trying to be governed by 193 different separate brains all going off in different directions. And, you know, you're right. It, it, it's bound to crash and burn with, 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 with no way to come to a, a coherent way to, 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 to run that ship. Uh, and I, I'm, I, so I think, I think we're getting at something when we're talking about somehow the, 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 the alternative to that, because, you know, the cabin, the, the, the cabin heads or, 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 the, or the 193 separate brains that are running there, it, it's the, the leadership at the top of those is not anxious to interact because they're in power because they're representing the part against the whole. So they're battling against each other. It has to come really, as you've mentioned, from, from the people. And we have to find a way from the... So how do you see a way of from the grassroots up building uh, this alternative model you mentioned that can function so much better than the broken UN that it... Uh, that, that it naturally comes into play and has power. I think what's gonna happen, it's unfortunate, but this is historically how humanity learns its big lessons and makes big strides and leaps is suffering. And we're being given plenty of opportunities to suffer even as we speak. You know, I had hoped that the coronavirus uh, pandemic would, would teach us some critical lessons uh, about the need to consult, collaborate, cooperate and come together to build uh, you know, through consultation and deliberation, come up with a system that we can all live with and recognize that, you know, creating the captain and the crew for the ship, whether it's a spaceship or a ship in the ocean. Um, I, I think uh, we are very likely to end up in a global war. Uh, the way we're heading right now with the arms race, the buildup of armaments, uh, it, it, it's absolutely crazy. We thought we had put the fear of nuclear war behind us. But I think we're, we're quite likely to enter into some kind of, of global warfare. And we need to get to the point where we suffer enough. And the question is, when is that? And this is where human beings have a free will choice. How much suffering is enough suffering? The, the next thing is we're seeing people in many countries around the world kind of say, we've had enough. People in countries we never dreamt of would raise their voices are doing so. You look at African countries, you look at Middle Eastern countries, you look at Asian countries, you look at Latin American countries, you look at this country. We thought we were all set and you know just sitting pretty, but we're not. You read the books on you know what it takes for us to enter into another civil war, and you realize that we're getting, we're inching closer to it. 
Um, I did one of my podcasts on it. There's a, a brilliant book written by Barbara Walter. She's a professor down in California about how civil wars start. It's really fascinating and it's a real eye opener. So I think that this kind of suffering will get us there. Well, the challenge, the problem with that is, is that, uh, you know, as, as scientists have pointed out, a shifts in the environment can create, can terminate the atmosphere that enables life on Earth. And it's already been shown that even a limited nuclear war, for instance, a nuclear war uh, between India and Pakistan, for example, just as an example, a limited nuclear war would throw so much soot into the air that the Earth would be coated with uh, a, a dark atmosphere, blocked out the sun, all the different species would die off because crops couldn't grow. Uh, it could also lead to our, our, our environment, this very thin layer around the Earth is so fragile that if we if we destroy that environment, you know, the Earth could become like Venus, you know, this this uh, uh, burning hot planet. Well, hell, Hades was uh, the, the predictions of Hades were exactly what life on on Earth would be without an atmosphere. And uh, so there wouldn't be a humanity to come together as one uh, if we if we allowed to get that far. So my hope is in the second half of what you said, not that the suffering can get so bad. I mean, there's enough suffering already, but it somehow we'll we'll create the uh, use the the, the movies uh, get, get get the Hollywood creative community get everybody going on creating a vision of a world that works and start attracting people through vision. I mean, there's two things that can move people. One is you know so much pain they try to do something different, but then they don't make necessarily rational choices. They they can make very stupid choices. You know, they're trying to escape the pain. But the other is is something that's attractive, a vision, a vision that's so so positive and so exciting yeah. that you know all these young people all of the world start coming together and doing it. Hey, we don't need this. We're already zooming with friends all over the world. We're already connecting around the world. We don't need to beg and plead our nation states to do anything. We're we're going to come together and we're going to create this system of global governance and we're going to just start interactively doing it because the actuality is that the economy. The, the 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 governments it's all human created and we humans can interactively create something better what do you think about moving in 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 that direction where we avoid you know going through a world war <laughs> which yeah. uh, may not may be terminal it may not be there may not be a second there, there may not be a plan b a, a yeah, second chance. i hear you so 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 let me let me say this yes i absolutely agree human beings make changes either because they have a compelling vision and they move towards it or because of pain um the ideal is to create a compelling vision and this is what you and i are in the business of doing right with, with right this my reimagining our world podcast it's exactly that let's create a vision that draws us as, as a magnet would and that is is joyful and uplifting and empowering and constructive at the same time I I, I do believe because I, I accept reality that uh, not all human beings are there and that suffering has a role I'm not saying that we absolutely I don't believe that we will get to the point of self-destructing by the way I do believe that the suffering could get a lot worse than it is. And given the choices we're making is likely to get a lot worse. However, we do, as Arnold Toynbee said, have the, the free will choice we've been given as Viktor Frankl said, the spiritual freedom and the independence of mind to change, make different, more empowering choices. 
I think the two are going to work together. In other words, I think that they're going to be, I see two processes going on in the world at the same time, a process of disintegration and a process of integration. And the best way I can describe it is that of the caterpillar metamorphosing into a, um, uh, a, a, butterfly. Into a butterfly. A butterfly, right. You know, it ends up eating itself. It literally self-destructs. It produces enzymes within the cocoon that are like acid that destroy its own body. That's what we're doing with these disintegrative processes, including the war and the conflict and, and so on. Um, but at the same time, there are these imaginal disks or what they're called, these small clusters of cells that have always been latent in the caterpillar, but we don't see with the naked eye, that once it's in this cocoon and as it's going through this putrid disintegration, these imaginal cells start to multiply rapidly. Those are the young people that you're talking about. Those are the people, the activists, the people who have a vision of a better future who are acting and we start to multiply rapidly. And it is only when the butterfly completely disintegrates, I mean, the caterpillar completely disintegrates and the butterfly now has enough parts that it's ready to be born, that we see, we will see this new order of creation come out of the cocoon. And it will have different qualities. So the caterpillar is earthbound, doesn't have much of a vision, can't move very far, very fast. The butterfly is a totally different creature, can rise above things, can fly, is beautiful, is delicate, and can, can come and go as it pleases. That I believe these twin processes both have the same goal. It's not suffering for the sake of suffering. It's suffering for the sake of waking us up <laughs> to the reality that we're one. And I think it's doing that. I already see this even in our neighborhood here in Washington, D.C. People are starting to change. People who in the past, for instance, would never say hello to you. I've lived here 37 years. Now we'll stop and talk to you on the street. The 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 the, the, the COVID and everything that has followed has, is is creating imperceptible and perceptible shifts in us, and so I'm well, very hopeful. I love that. I love that. A uh, basically beautiful concluding remark because that's the vision we need to emerge from this earthbound, you know, little wormy creature into this emergent butterfly that can fly and take us high around the world and bring humanity to its true beauty and oneness. And you are a beautiful butterfly helping carry us on those wings. So let me turn it over to questions so people can begin to ask a few questions and, and have a chat. Wonderful. Thank you. Thank you so much. Gosh, Aveda, oh my goodness. Um, I love the back and forth. Um, the fact that you believe that we will not we will not destroy everything. I love that. Uh, and then, of course, the butterfly. Yes, the beautiful us transforming um, a whole different uh, way of looking at the world. I mean, right now we're in that eat, 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 eat. We're just here for food. And, <laughs> and then we're going to beautiful. I love that. So great. We have a couple questions and comment. Um, so the first uh, comment or question would be Quanta. Quanta, she cannot show her video. So uh, Quanta, go right ahead. Thank you very much. Uh, really appreciate your presentation and, and, and also for the uh, World Citizens inviting uh, such a wonderful speaker. Um, you have mentioned uh, the systemic and macro level development of humanity from the Baha'i perspective, institutional, economic, and governmental 
etc. Um, as you know, Christianity is about individual salvation and Islam is individual development uh, through following certain uh, uh, rules and regulations that apply to daily practice. What are the, uh, the Baha'i uh, perspective, Baha'i teachings about the individual development because so that you have healthy cells? And I also have to disclose that I am a Baha'i. I've been a Baha'i since 1972. So I'm, I come from Islamic background. Thank you very much. Interesting. Uh, so uh, very uh, briefly, um, you know, we talked about progressive revelation and that with the coming of each new um, messenger from the creator, we, we learn new things like teachers in school, you go to first grade, second grade, third grade, they all build on each other. So you're, you're right uh, in, in pointing out that, for instance, in Christianity, the focus is on individual salvation and then individual development in Islam. In, in the Baha'i faith, the emphasis is equally put on individual growth development. It's not so much salvation as that the purpose of life is to develop um, qualities, spiritual qualities that act as indispensable limbs in all um, the worlds of God. So we believe that after we die, our soul continues on its eternal journey. Uh, and that we need to develop these qualities of character, if you like, in order to, like the baby, the fetus in the womb of the mother needs to develop limbs and organs in order to be able to function well in this life. And even though it doesn't understand why it needs legs, because it's not walking in the amniotic fluid and why it needs eyes, because it can't see. But if it fails to develop them, then, then it's kind of handicapped in this life and can't enjoy this world as much. So too, the Baha'i view is that we are here to develop these qualities. Um, so that's the individual part. Equally important, though, is societal development, that we need to develop communities and institutions and that the role of institutions, and this, uh, Arthur, is also really important for our conversation, that we need to, one of the mindset shifts is for us to change our concept of what power is and what the role of authority and leadership is. And the concept here goes from something where people dominate and control, control people and control resources, to People empower those who have the responsibility and the privilege of creating an environment in which all of us can actualize our God-given potential. When we start to reframe the concept of power that way, all of a sudden you're gonna start electing different kinds of leaders. If that becomes our definition of leadership, all of a sudden, I'm not going for the guy with the big ego who just is telling everyone or, or the woman that they're the best things and sliced bread and vote for me. In fact, that would be a red flag. Anyone tooting their own horn is exactly the kind of person you don't want to vote for. <laughs> you want to look at their record of service, their humility, their compassion, their ability to listen, their ability to collaborate, their absence of prejudice. Are they unifiers or do they stoke division? Are they courageous? Are they honest? Are they transparent? Are they able to create a vision and then pull people along with them? All of these things. 
So this balance between building community and societal organization while also developing individual capacity because the, the relationships are symbiotic. So I hope that that answer uh, helps, Quanta. I love all of those qualifications and new ways of looking at people as what's important and, and uh, valuing uh, those uh, elements that are gonna take us further and, and of course be the butterfly. Um, so, now, <laughs> so now we'd like to go to Isaiah from South Africa. He would like to uh, make a comment. Go ahead, Isaiah. My I listen this very careful in this very important for me um, since I get uh, the, the vision that is happening here. But I come with a comment and also uh, some little bit worried about uh, what we discussed today because for me it seems like we are, we are, we are talking like this but we don't uh, take action. So we don't have enough time, you know. Um, the way I see in this world that we harm ourselves too much, uh, completely that we can't even uh, recognize ourselves, and uh, and uh, that is where I think that is a, a problem of our mind because we we always believe that the nationality is only thing that you have to be, and they always teach us to be proud uh, proud of our nationality, uh, uh, document or whatever. And those things is one uh, downfall for humanity in this world because we are not want, uh, willing to shift it from where we was and to, to uh, be able to build the world. There, there is where my fear is that what did we do um, as a world citizen to prevent that? Because we can talk maybe 40 years, something and it's never happened, change. Now, according to how much I see, how much we harm ourselves that we can't even, even uh, afford to pick up and you know, think properly because of a damage that we can afford to, you know, we, we cause ourselves. Now, what is the alternative way of moving this forward quickly so that we can heal, then we can start proper, um, prepare our, our journey forward? You're absolutely right, Isaiah. Um, time is of the essence. Things are happening very fast. What's also interesting is that, um, that our global challenges and our local challenges and our regional challenges are all, there's a confluence. Uh, they're all coming together. So we've got a pandemic that we haven't solved yet. And we've got climate change that's just getting worse and worse and worse. And we've got these wars. We've got Tigray and Yemen and Ukraine and Myanmar and D Democratic Republic of Congo and on and on just everywhere. Um, so on the one hand, one can be fearful and you do, did say you're fearful. However, I'm still hopeful because I believe that there are enough and I'm going to go back to the analogy of the butterfly. Another analogy you can think of is labor for the women here. Um, you know how the contractions start to become more frequent, uh, different in kind and in intensity. 
It's very painful. It's very unpleasant. You think you're going to burst. You think that your body is literally going to tear apart. Uh, it's hard for men to really imagine that, but <laughs> having been a mother <laughs> or being a mother and having gone through it, I can tell you. And, you know, you hear, you see in the movies, the screens, the shouts, I can't do it. I can't do it. You know, I'm, I'm not going to be able to push through. And then you give birth to this wonderful new creature. Going back to the other analogy of the butterfly, it is a messy process. You know, if you poke a hole in that cocoon, it is disgusting what's going on in there. It is smelly, it is dirty, it is chaotic, it is anarchic. It looks like nothing good can come of this. This is just the end of this thing that was like acid being poured on, on a body and it's just all goop, it's disintegrating. And yet out of this mess comes this butterfly. So I know it's a question for me of, of having faith. Um, that's what lets me put my fear aside, having faith, but not just blind faith and then sitting and doing nothing. You're right. We have to be acting tirelessly. Each and every one of us needs to become part of those, one of those imaginal discs that will multiply and create new systems. And I have ideas, so it's not that I don't have ideas. So for instance, I have an idea for a place, a very concrete place for us to start, to build a, a, a supranational institution that, that will be capable of tackling three of our global challenges, climate change, nuclear proliferation, and the equitable distribution of energy to all the peoples of the world. I've written about it in my book, A Bridge to Global Governance. Um, we've done this, humanity's done this before. It's built on a historical model that was used after the Second World War in Europe with the European Coal and Steel Community. And it is grounded in all the things I talked about, principles, first principles, the principles of oneness and justice and so on. So there are things to do and there are people working on these things. Um, we may not see them like the imaginal discs. Remember we said with the naked eye, you cannot see them, but they are there and we're evolving. And so if you, all you and I can do is to focus on what is my responsibility? What am I doing? Every morning when I wake up, I ask myself this question, Saveda, what are you going to do today to make the world a better place? And that's all you and I can control. Yes, yes, it's it's taking like Isaiah was saying action. So Veda wakes up every morning and she says, um, "What can I do today?" And 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 not to be afraid to, to have faith, but we're we're all here to do something. We we see what's happening and we need to help help guide, be part of the solution. Looks like we have one last question just squeezed in from uh, David Gallup, World Citizen government head. Go ahead, David. Hi, Soved. It's so great to have you here as a guest on the People Powered Planet podcast. I don't think uh, maybe Arthur didn't mention this, but, uh, Ed, but this sort of goes to your, your uh, recent reply to Isaiah. Um, 
that all the work that you're already doing uh, to raise awareness. I mean, I've got your book here in front of me, which I'm reading, which I love, you know, giving us the, the new mindsets in comparison to the, our old biases and mindsets and to think about that. But we're both on the board of the, of the organization Citizens for Global Solutions. So separately from your Center for Peace and Global Government, separately from the work I'm doing at WSA, we are trying to educate people on a day-to-day basis about the importance of that, that the world is one country and humankind is its, is its citizens, as Baha'u'llah said, right? Um, but one thing I, I, I don't, Arthur and Melanie may not have known about, but I would love to hear what you have planned for uh, workshops that are coming up here in the CGS office for these young women, these women who are sort of in some vulnerable situations, but were uh, accepted into this program at Trinity University. What, you'll, what you're planning for that, the workshops that you're going to be giving to educate those young women into change, helping us to change the world? Yeah, so David, yes, wonderful. So I think one of the things that David, um, you said that I want to hammer home is that uh, imaginal disks need to come together and collaborate and work together in clusters. So David, you have uh, the World Service Authority, you're the president of that. I've got a, a, a Center for Peace and Global Governance, yet we come together and then both of us, you and I serve on yet another, on the board of yet another organization, Citizens for Global Solutions. So these are people who are doing their own things, but also collaborating and cooperating. And one of the things that, that we're doing actually starting February 6th is, um, starting a series of workshops. So, so I've been asked to offer a series of three workshops. They're entitled 21st Century Ready. And what's exciting to me is the students who will be attending these workshops. It's designed for Washington Trinity University that is an undergraduate uh, university for um, low-income women of color. Um, they are the ones who usually don't get the opportunities, right, to engage in these kinds of discussions about building a, 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 a new system of global governance that empowers and, and enables all of us to fulfill our potential. So we're going to be talking about the importance of global ethics. We're going to be talking about the institutional infrastructure that we need to build along the lines that Gary Davis was talking about. Um, in the movie, and then we're going to get very practical and look at the example of starting with this new supranational body that can operate alongside the United Nations. So the UN does some things really well. You know, they work on literacy programs around the world. They, they work on eliminating diseases and so on. So the things that they do well, we should let them continue doing. Unfortunately, they've been incapable of solving some of the big global challenges we have, like climate change and like nuclear proliferation. So for that, maybe we can start building some organizations alongside the UN. And maybe in the future, who knows, it'll be up to future generations. Maybe they merge together or they continue alongside, or maybe at some point we can eventually let the UN just do its own thing and create a new system of, 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 of world governance. So thank you, David, for highlighting that. I'm really excited. I'm excited to meet these women. Uh, the entire program, there's several organizations involved. And apparently we thought that only a, few, a handful would sign up, but 49 of these students <laughs> ended up signing up for the program, which was mind blowing. Um, and so I'm really looking forward to meeting uh, these women and meeting them in person, so. Wow. Thank you, thank you, Zaveda. Wow, that's beautiful. That sounds awesome. I want to join. Um, oh, yeah. <laughs> so thank you, Saveda. I'm 
we appreciate you so much. The work that you're doing, the writing, everything that you're doing, so important, so important to think, think critically, but also have faith in the future and also take action. So with that, I will send it back to Arthur. Arthur, for the close, take it away. Yes, thank you so much. And I, I also, like Melanie, I want to know more about that because my daughter is in Washington, D.C. with another one of these organizations doing great work, the American Friends Service Committee. Uh, she heads the American Friends Service Committee's Washington, D.C. office there in Davis House. So uh, maybe she can interconnect with and be helpful to, uh, to this project as well. Um, so we'll follow up with that afterwards. Anyway, it's just been a super, super pleasure to have you here on the People Powered Planet podcast. Uh, you're, uh, uh, you're, you're a very refreshing speaker, and I love the fact that you're talking about how do we create that alternative and not be stuck necessarily in these old broken systems, but be willing to step outside of them and, and move forward in a big way. So uh, I think for our final word, we're going to want to, and next week, by the way, I just want to say we're, we're having our club social, so we'd love to have you and others come back and just interact. And you can tell us more about your childhood and dealing with the bullies there or any other things we want to talk about. It's our club social time. Uh, but I do want to close by letting you say a little bit more about how people can get your fabulous books, uh, how, how they can join up with what you're doing and how they can join in with, with CGS and the other things. So uh, how do people carry on this uh, terrific conversation we've started today? So thank you. This has been delightful. Um, I, and thank you for asking. So probably the best way to um, get in, in, in touch with me or to keep up on what this, the work that the Center for Peace and Global Governance is doing is to go to our website, which is uh, cpgg.org. I'm putting it in the, uh, in the chat. The books are all available on Amazon. There are five different books and they all build on each other. Uh, so the latest one, The Alchemy of Peace, if you're interested, for instance, in the mindset shift around leadership and the qualities that we talked about and what we should be looking for, there's a whole section on that in The Alchemy of Peace. It's one of those mindset shifts that then leads to a shift in habit. And we need both. First, you change the mind, then you change the behavior. Um, and uh, so all of available on Amazon, both in digital format or, uh, and in hard copy format. Um, uh, all the training programs, including the thing at Trinity University, you'll find on the CPGG website. There's a special page on the website called 21st Century Ready. And uh, my upcoming workshops and training programs will be on there. I'm also working on an online course um, because I realize in today's interconnected world, the best way to reach people everywhere is through um, online uh, materials. Um, other than that, feel free to get in touch with me. Uh, my contact info is also on the website. And please join my podcast, Reimagining Our World. If you, I think Melanie had put that, yes, she's put that up in the chat. Um, it is really a, a, a monthly infusion of hope creates a vision, this is what Arthur was talking about, creating a compelling vision of the kind of world we want, recognizing where we are now, what choices have we made, taking responsibility for the choices that have gotten us here, and then deciding what can we do mindfully and consciously to bridge the gap between where we are and where we want to be. And that's what engenders hope and creates action, as Isaiah was saying, we need to act, 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 because we're running out of time. Well, we are uh, out of time here today, but this is just the beginning of uh, 
of creating time for our whole whole world and our whole future. So thank you so much for being with us, all of us, all of you, and join us this week and every week for another exciting episode of the People Powered Planet Podcast. World citizen, lift up your voices. Oh, you know we got something to say. All we need is the same directions, heading in one way. One way.